This is the Shift Podcast. Today on the Shift Daily Podcast, we take a deeper look into residential schools in response to the discovery in Kamloops over the weekend. We take your calls and have conversation, take your text messages, and Canadians are bothered, confused, and want answers. Dr. Bug joins us on the shift and teaches us everything you need to know about cicadas and why are they leaving the ground after 17 years down there. Then what do they do? Turns out they have a lot of sex and die. But he also gets into why they taste good and what bugs we can and what bugs we should eat. First, though, here on the Shift Daily Podcast, before we get into all of that, we do offer you some political theater. Attention shift heads, we ask that you kindly take your seats as tonight's performance of political theater presented by the Shift Shakespeare Company is about to begin. Please enjoy the show and do ignore any typos. (laughs) So what we do is we take a speech and we present it to you in Shakespearean. We have translated for you the shift head. Uh, Tonight's piece is from April 7th, 2020. It was the presentation in which the Prime Minister of Canada, Justin Trudeau, spoke about us speaking moistly. Here was what was said originally. My understanding of what Dr. Tam explained yesterday is that if people want to wear a mask, that's okay. It protects more, others more, than it protects you because it prevents you from breathing or speaking moistly on them. What a terrible image. But it actually is something that people can do in certain situations. Our focus is, though, that they make sure they don't get, uh, think that wearing masks can mean they don't have to social distance. The presentation. Mine own understanding of what Dr. Tam did explain yesterday is yonder to be true. People wanteth to wear the mask yonder as well now to protect others more than protect thee because to prevent thee from breaking or speaking moistly on those folk. What a terrible image. But to actually is something yon people can doth in certain situations. Our focus, though, is making sure yon people don't bethink yon wearing masks can cullionly yon those junts doesn't has to social distance as much as our can when mere oft. Thank you. <laughs> Might I present another piece of theatre, my good sir? Yes, please. We doth not needeth a pandemic, are a special day to recognizeth thy essential contributions to this ground. But I desire all Canadians shall joineth me in expressing our deepest gratitude. I desire Canadians honk a dram out louder, at which hour thy shift ends the present day and addeth another rainbow to their window. I don't know if in Shakespearean, you know, at the Globe Theater, if they snapped after a performance. Of Going Macbeth. for it. Um, can I? Um, so, <laughs> uh, you know, it sounds a lot better when you throw it back. Um, that's for sure. But I would also like to acknowledge um, <laughs> uh, if you want to honk a dram, 
don't know if you yeah, should do that in public. Ram. Yeah. I don't know if that's something you should be doing in public. Just saying. Uh, so there it is, my friends. Political theater with Justin Trudeau. <laughs> Speaking moistly to everyone. Uh, by the way, uh, speaking moistly, what a terrible image is equally as translatable into ew uh, so many hundreds of years ago. Very cool stuff. This is the Shift Podcast. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau is promising more concrete action, quotes, to support survivors in Canada's Indigenous people in the wake of unmarked graves of children discovered at Old Residential School, B.C. Um, as David Aiken reports, the promise comes as Ottawa faces more pressure to fulfill key recommendations for the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. As a dad, I can't imagine what it would feel like to have my kids taken away from me. And as Prime Minister, I am appalled by the shameful policy that stole Indigenous children from their communities. Campaigning to be Prime Minister in 2015, Justin Trudeau promised he would implement all 94 recommendations made by the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, including six that had to do with missing children and burial information. Things like creating a national register of student deaths, a register of burial places, and funding burial ceremonies and commemorations. Those calls to action have not been fully implemented. So that's the frustration. Like, you have a report. We don't want it gathering dust. The commission did a lot of work to figure out how many children died and where they are buried, but some work was left undone when the Harper government turned down a request by the commission for an extra $1.5 million to help locate missing cemeteries. It would not be until 2019 when the Trudeau government set aside funds, about $34 million, to implement the six commission recommendations on burial sites of children. And they need to fully fund the uh, work that needs to be done to identify the unmarked graves of children across Canada because there are many, many more. But as of this week, the status of all the commission recommendations involving Ottawa is unfinished, incomplete talks continue. So, so far there's a lot of distance between their statements and their actions towards children and we need to be watching carefully their actions. We've got to grieve this moment but for the federal government it's not good enough to just continue with symbolic gestures. Trudeau responded to that Monday. We promised concrete action and that's how we'll support survivors, families and Indigenous peoples. Now, Trudeau would not say what he means by concrete action. That could take a couple of days to work out. But in the meantime, MPs agreed unanimously to hold an urgent debate on this issue tomorrow. David, a lot of people say it's time for less talk, more action. Advocates like Cindy Blackstock say one concrete action could be to end these court battles involving residential school survivors and Indigenous children. What's the likelihood of that? Well, I asked Trudeau about that today, and it doesn't sound to me like the government of Canada is going to back off three court cases it has ongoing. One of those involves residential school survivors at St. Anne's School in northern Ontario. And this school, by the way, is a school where they used an electric chair to punish the kids. And St. Anne's survivors have had to go to court to get Canada to turn over documents about how the kids there were cared for. The other two cases involve care of the current generation of Indigenous kids. Ottawa's appealing a couple of human rights rulings. One of those cases is in court in a couple of weeks. But uh, you're right, advocates and some parliamentarians say Ottawa should just drop all three of these legal cases and get on with the task of caring for survivors 
and the current generation of Indigenous kids. Now, it's not that easy to just drop court cases and move along. But the reality is, is the Canadian government, regardless of which party, has made this not exist for a very, very long time. This particularly uh, particular Canadian government, though, has promised so much reconciliation with Indigenous peoples in general, the water conversation, making the water happen. All of these things have most certainly not happened. And the thing that gets me the most is the careful what you wish for. This This government and that party ran with all of these social notions that they were going to change all of these pieces. Now, what's happened is, is they called it out. They said, we're going to do this. We're going to fix this. We're going to, uh, you know, reconcile. We're going to do all this stuff. In today's world, as the needle has moved, people bit on that hook. And now there's an expectation for many, many governments before this one. They've said that they, the governments have said that they're going to reconcile and do all kinds of things to support indigenous peoples. Well, here's the thing. This government bid on it. So did Canada. And now they're the ones being held accountable for the water, for what comes next in this storyline, because this is a chance for them to make something happen. And when you do the reading on the articles of the, Dozens of millions of dollars that get spent on fighting court cases. It does seem grossly out of balance. And we'll just leave that part there for now. Many people across Canada are trying to grapple with the discovery of the graves uh, of 215 children estimated in Kamloops. But as Heather Urich's West reports, residential school survivors say it's time to try harder to find all of the children who never return home from the government and church run institutions. Alan Knockwood was a young child when he was taken from his family and forced to live in a residential school. We were punished for any hint of disobedience. I was nine years old and they took my hands out like this and I had ten hits on each hand with the strap. And it caused my hands to swell up to the point where I couldn't move them. Still, Knockwood says he considers himself lucky. He survived. At least 215 children in Kamloops did not. And across the country, Indigenous community members believe there are many more victims that remain unaccounted for. There was a lot of first-degree murder, murders that happened in those schools. So it, it triggered a lot of emotions for thousands of people right across this country. In Saskatchewan, the Federation of Sovereign Indigenous Nations say it's time to conduct radar ground searches at residential school sites across the province. Near Calgary, the Siksika Nation is asking an investigation be carried out at every site across the country. I had to take a drive and have a good cry. Out of that remembering, but also being grateful to these children that were found. And uh, the probability of finding children here, too, uh, around this school. The past few days have been traumatizing for survivors like Butch Wolfleg, remembering not only those who died at the schools, but in the years since they came home. Their way of dealing with this trauma is through addictions, uh, dulling the pain. And a lot of them died while they were dulling the pain. Speaking about such a painful past is not easy. For many survivors, it's not something they often do. But there is also a deep need to ensure these stories are told, so that moving forward there can be peace and justice that is just not possible without accountability and truth. Heather Urex West, Global News, Calgary. 
Uh, it's important, that last line of the story, where they say these government and church-run institutions, one of the misunderstandings about this is this was created by the government and then um, run by various churches. So that's just important as we include the storyline, because for me, I don't want to see anybody get off the hook here. The churches need to deal with their participation. Some of them have, uh, and the Catholics have not. Um, and also, the government needs to be held accountable for their participation. Kristen Edmondson says, the 215 children found buried. How long ago did this occurred? I'm not sure of the timeline here. Thank you, Chris, for the text message. The timeline is quite vast, actually, um, because that residential school was open for a very, very long time. And so that's the part that... Um, that, that is unknown and not clear in this particular part. The school was established in 1890, and then it ran until 1969. The federal government took over from of it in 69 and then ran it for another nine years after that. So it was part of the um, Canadian Indian residential school system. It was The money was allocated from the government. I believe it was $10,000 to fill the first school. Then the Catholic Church took over. They ran it for a bunch of years, about 80. Then the government took over and ran it for 10 more. So this particular grave, um, as far as I've know, I have not seen just yet, um, specifically where that goes. There are some storylines about mandatory attendance laws, things like that, um, all kinds of uh, nasty stories uh, that are anecdotes from survivors of this people who attended this people who saw it happen and everything else about things that happened but yes it is possible that this timeline is quite vast and not just happened in a day so all of these pieces matter when we when we because it's up to you and i to retain this story accurately for what comes next we did not learn about this in school the government has kept this out of schools none of these pieces have been in front of us to educate uh, us through the school system. It's up to you and I today to educate ourselves accurately and make sure that the storyline going forward, because it was it was a snow job from the past, you and I need to make sure that we carry this story forward as accurately as possible into the future. Because if we don't get into this being accurate, we're as guilty as everybody else that, that whitewashed it. We are. So... That's where our responsibility today is, is to be accurate in this uh, storytelling. Many people across Canada are trying to grapple with the discovery of all of this and um, what action is being taken. Survivors want action. Manitoba elder from Brandon says we need to continue to support survivors while working together to move forward. My name is uh, Hilfit. I graduated out of Kamloops Indian Residential School in 1968. I suffered abuse at the residential school physical, uh, mental, and spiritual abuse. It was sad that I was like on a roller coaster of emotions since Thursday, from tears to anguish to anger. The grounds that I walked in, probably there were corpses under my feet. So when you say, were you shocked? I'll tell you it's been shock after shock after shock. You know, the... um, the highest form of respect we give other human beings is to listen to them. And then say, what are we going to do? And sit down together and say, here's what we're going to do now because we've, we've come to a mutual agreement what's going to work here. 
See, the system up until today is we're going to do this for you and it's going to be good for you. Because that's all they know. I get it. I get it. That's all society knows. They don't know indigenous methodologies of healing or the effectiveness of it. The survivors, first off, need to be supported. Long term, not just today and tomorrow when this news feed is um, still fresh. Because a week from now, two weeks, a month from now, if they're still living with those nightmares and they become even more intense because of 215 bodies and counting, let's look at ourselves and see what we can change. As a government official, as an administrator, and as a citizen of this country, what can I do? All right, your text message is 877-399-9898. A couple that we want to acknowledge here, um, just because you took the time to send them in, they're well thought out. One texter says, it's from Alberta, it says, screw memorials, build these people water treatment plants and hospitals and schools, put their names on those things, get them out of this funk that we put them in, and the Vatican should pay the tab. I disagree with the Vatican should pay the tab, uh, because the government created the program. The Catholics ran about half of the schools at the peak in 1930, Anglicans ran a quarter of them. So I don't understand why the Vatican should pay the tab when they fulfilled a program organized by the government. Should they contribute to the tab? Yes. But what about the Anglicans, the Church of England? They ran almost 25% of those churches. This particular church was a Catholic church, or this particular school, excuse me, was a Catholic school, just to be clear, the one in Kamloops. So memorials? Well, I mean, some of the prime ministers that did uh, created some of these programs, uh, their names are on things. So I like your idea, putting people's names on schools. That's a lot of schools, though, by the way this trend is going. But thank you for the suggestion. Uh, it is a, a great suggestion. What accountability regarding residential schools, uh, what does it look like to you, Shane? Thank you, Scott, for the text. He also goes out to say massive bunny payouts. I'm just curious. I don't see how the people responsible could be held accountable today. Yes, uh, most of those people, I would assume, would be dead that were held as responsible for it. And, um, you know, one of the things that I've been told so many times, you know, and this is, I'm going to say this because of the fact that it's a, uh, it's an old stereotype about indigenous folks. It would say that drinking and drugs, right? How many times have, have you heard those racist slurs in your life? Less these days. But think about, just think about one thing. Is it possible that parents of kids... Uh, who their kids went missing, you know, self-medicating, going through all these programs because their kids are gone. I mean, there's so many things where this has been screwed up. And um, and some of these uh, groups and people have been absolutely uh, set up for failure. So what does reconciliation look like? Accountability look like today? I think the last conversation about memorials and be doing that, I think so. I think that all of those things, I think that accountability comes from changing the curriculum and including it in Canadian history. I think accountability comes literally going through history and breaking it all out as to which of the prime ministers did what. That doesn't diminish the good things they did, but it needs to be included. And I think accountability does go as far as at least going to all residential schools that are known and using today's technology to discover if there are people there. I think so. To me, that's what accountability looks like, right? To your point, I mean, it's not like you can put somebody in jail today for the most part. But to me, that's what accountability looks like. And a week from now, we might have a different view of accountability as we learn more.
Well, I'm just going to say it like it is. Shit just got real. Right? That's what happened. Because now it just got real to everybody. Babies. 215 pairs of, of shoes on steps in Regina. That photo was... Oh. You know, so the reality is, is that, sure, you could even argue, like, there is no debate here. None. You could even say, even if those kids got sick, you telling me that they don't... In, in a, in a church, any church run facility, you're telling me that they don't deserve a dignified burial? Get real. There is no debate in all of this. And, um, you know, I think Canadians are seeing that the, 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 the government and the smokescreen. Jimmy from Kamloops says, we will never have the answers. Who will do the investigations? The RCMP have their hands covered in blood too. I would like it if you could talk about how to have a clear, unbiased investigation. Jimmy, uh, I unfortunately find that very sad, and I unfortunately agree with you, is that how do you get the information to not be filtered? Incredible. Absolutely incredible. The residential schools, new tech says, is absolutely disgraceful and heartbreaking, shameful. I'm also concerned what this same thing is happening at Woodland School for Development of Disability over 100 years. In fact, there was a cemetery at that location. What happened to the children who were taken away in the 1800s and early 20th century? I mean, that's a very good point. This same storyline happened with uh, mental institutions, handicapped institutions. I mean, you look at the royal family to find some of the sisters that ended up in, believed to be ended up and are still not acknowledged in in um, homes. So there, there's a lot of dirt here. And Canadians need to know. Canadians need to know. This needs to be part of our education system. The There, there is so much great that happens in this country that it gets diminished when there are these nasty secrets. Bob is in Edmonton, 877-399-9898. Hey, Bob. Hey, Shade. Uh, I don't know where to start. My mother was in a missionary school. My grandfather pulled her out and my uncle. Um, if not, I would never have been born. It's possible. I could never have been born. As well as my nieces, my nephews, my grandchildren. But now I just learned that my niece, in Laurent, Saskatchewan, was in a residential school as late as the early 90s. I mean, what the hell? Yeah, I didn't she know those dates. She never told me that. I didn't know that. Otherwise, I would have said something, done something. What's, um... Yeah, see, that just goes to show the smokescreen, right? Like, um... That, I mean, it's in your family, you didn't even know. The National Center for Truth and Reconciliation, NCTR, estimates more than 150,000 children attended residential schools in Canada from the 1830s. You ready for this, Bob? Until the last school closed in 1996. Like, I can't believe that. You know, uh, I'm almost in tears because thinking about what my niece went through, she was only a baby, but she was my baby. Yep. You know, it's one thing what my 
my mother went through, what my grandmother went through. I'm only glad that my grandfather pulled my mother and my uncle from this school. Like, otherwise, like I say, I might never have been born. But my niece was still going through it in the 90s? Oh, come on. It's bothersome. Can you give us your niece's first name, Bob? Bob, can you give us your niece's first name? Uh, Marlene. I'll give you Arlene, and I'll give you. I'll tell you why. Is because when we talk about your niece, it feels like Marlene or Arlene. Sorry, Marlene. Mar Mar. Okay, spell it for me. I want to get it right. M A R L E N E. Marlene. Okay, thank you. The we reason why I want... I mean, we're a strong family. Mm-hmm. And we're a British family on a northern reserve. There's no reason for this. And I, I'm sorry, but I'm almost at tears thinking about it. She should never have gone through this. What do you want to see happen, Bob? I want roles to head. I want, like, I I want not that just the government, but the Catholic Church, the Anglican Church, the United Church, to pay rep- reparation. Yeah, I, uh, I'm sorry, I get so emotional because I think about what she went through. Well, Bob, I want to acknowledge the courage it takes to share that story, especially when it hits so uh, deep to home. And um, I want you to get away from the reserve. Mm -hmm. So we never had to go through that. And we never understood why. But now I understand. I understand why. Bob. I want to acknowledge the fact that a couple of things. Number one, when you tell us Marlene's name, it puts a human being behind it. So thank you for sharing her first name. The other part that I want you to know is that um, please don't apologize for being emotional. A, in life. B, on this show. The shift is a place where we can have the real conversation, and that's what matters. And, Bob, what you're giving everybody who's listening in Canada right now is you're giving us another layer to the story, much like the photo from Regina of the kid's shoes on the steps, you are giving a story of a family member named Marlene who went through this and the impact on you today. It's 2021, Bob. So that is what you've created for us today. Are you okay? Thanks a lot. All right, Bob. Thank you for the phone call. I collect myself on that. Bob and Edmonton, right there. So there's a list that comes from a, it's from Toronto.com, and just to give credit to them, uh, Brenda, uh, I, I don't know how to, Wastasakut, Indigenous author. I apologize, Brenda, if I mispronounce it. I didn't thoroughly practice it before we got on. Indigenous author and assistant professor at Indigenous Studies University of Toronto uh, created a list of nine Canadian leaders who contributed to uh, Indigenous oppression. So here are the names. You ready? So we talk about memorials for kids. Here are names of leaders that were involved. Uh, Sir Johnny MacDonald, a large part, uh, created the residential school system and supported it by doling out the dough. I mean, that's 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 one of the guys. 
uh, Edward Dudney. Uh, Egerton Ryerson is one of the reasons why the Ryerson conversation started. And I'm sure uh, a conversation for us here on the ship for another day, I'm sure that conversation now is definitely going to continue. Uh, the quote from this article with Brenda says, Ryerson helped create the residential school system and believed in separating indigenous children, converting them to Christianity. There was also Nicholas Flood Davin, uh, Duncan Campbell Scott, Edward Cornwallis, Neil Webster, uh, Alan Webster Neal, Hector Lewis Langevin, which the Langevin name has been, I mean, in Calgary, it was on a bridge. So it became the Reconciliation Bridge as they took the Langevin name off the bridge. And the last on the list is Pierre Elliott Trudeau. Um, he's quoted as saying this, in 50 years from now, in what way will you be integrated? I don't say assimilated, I say integrated. He was quoted as saying at a conference. And so here, here's the catch where this really hits home. This prime minister is not just a prime minister, right? We look at all three big parties. I mean, if it was Aaron O'Toole, if it was Jagmeet Singh, it's it's a little bit different because this is the father of the prime minister. That conversation needs to be had. Right? Now, understand, that's not Justin, that's Pierre. They're two distinct, different people, at least give them that credit. But the reality is, is not only is did this happen, but this happened when my dad was prime minister is another conversation that needs to happen. It's the shift podcast. Last week on the shift, we had a conversation about bugs, cicadas um, to be exact. And they, they sleep and then they come out and they have a party and then they go back to sleep. So in that conversation, I couldn't figure out the difference between a cicada and a cigario. Um, that was, that was where I got tangled up in that conversation. I'm, I'm not, I'm not embarrassed or too ashamed to say that I, I, I don't know if I knew the difference. I mean, in all fairness, those words are similar. Ryan said, why don't we uh, get Mark Moffat on? He's the bug guy. He loves this stuff and let's find out about it. So, uh, cicadas, Mark, not Sicarios, just to be clear. Yeah, so that's right. We're going to get uh, hit by enough of uh, cicadas to keep us busy. We don't need anything else right now. Uh, have you seen any yet? Are they are they out and about? I have. I don't know. I don't I, like. I don't know anything about them. I don't think we get them in up in Calgary where I am. Um, you don't get this particular batch, but you get other kinds. You really? get the the more you know, more discreet ones, not the ones that come out in the trillions. You know, you get the ones that comes out in the tens of tens, and that's maybe a more convenient number. I do like that number for most people when it comes to insects. So tell us about this, because, I mean, I don't even get how they all wake up at the same time. Like, do they all share an alarm clock? How does this work? Well, you know, uh, they, they were last out when uh, George Bush was president down here. So they probably just go through the news cycles and enough nice. of them uh, go like, OK, things are looking promising now. Maybe we should all emerge. <laughs> no, no, that's not it at all. But they uh, they are. uh there are several kinds of cicadas. There are cicadas, well, there are several thousand kinds, but most of them come out every year. Uh, but s some others have developed a life cycle that's very tricky, and that is that they come out in a very unusual number of years. One is the 13-year cicada, and another is this one, the 17-year cicada we're all looking forward to in the East Coast here. And uh, the basic reason for that is that, uh, you know, you trick nobody... 
no predator can sit around waiting for 17 years or keep track of the number 17. It's a very awkward number to remember, even if you did have the brain for it as a predator. So they escape uh, being eaten by just all emerging in an explosion at once in an unexpected time. Uh, you know, they're not sleeping down there. They're sucking. They're sucking. They're sucking. Yeah, that's it. They're, you know, the, the, the immature form sucks. And you probably know that from other species, but in this case, they actually suck the sap of trees down underground. They're fairly harmless to the tree. And then they, uh, you know, they decide it's time for some romance. And in this case, it's 17 years. Oh. And they all come up, uh, you know, and just have a, <clears throat> a wild and crazy time for about a month and then fall over dead. Wow. It's the perfect life cycle, really, if you think about it. <laughs> I wish I had, humans shall shall invent that eventually, and it'll, it'll save us a lot of, well, yeah. you know, aggravation. And bank fees, frankly. It would save us a lot of bank oh, fees. Yeah. <laughs> um, get us one of bank fees. Yeah. So is it like a butterfly where it's like a little worm and then turns into the bug, or is it like an egg and then it grows into the bug and then flies away and makes babies? How does that work? No, it's, it's sort of like... A, a caterpillar, you know, the immature butterfly, but it's a, it's a it's a different form entirely because it lives under underground in the soil, and uh, it's not a pretty pretty thing down there. And I kind of think cicadas are cool looking when they they emerge. Some people find them ghastly. They have those. This particular brood has bright red eyes, which uh, turns people off. Uh, you know, it looks like it might belong to a cult cultish insect of yeah, some kind. Ugly, but, man. But, they're they're totally harmless. They don't bite, sting, or anything else. They're they're actually even tasty. So you know there there are good good things going on. Okay, so a uh, couple, <laughs> two things, Mark. Uh, they don't hurt people. Is that what you're saying? They're just an annoyance, really. Well, yeah. The, the only the only annoyance is they're loud. Mm. Having finding a mate apparently requires being very loud in the kind of bars they hang in. Yeah. And the kind of bars they hang in is everyone's backyard. So you get, you know, you can get uh, a million of them in an acre in, in this brood that's coming out mm. now, and that's a lot of loud. Yeah. Okay. That's a lot of loud, loud guys looking for some excitement for at love. once. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'd imagine drunk guys drinking beer in the street, um, loud. Um, okay. So then you said then they make babies and then, then they just think they, they, that's it. They're just exhausted. They don't fall asleep. They just keel over. They just keel over. It's, it's basically, they have sex and die. It's a minimal life, uh, expectancy. And, you know, it's, it's kind of, I think they all die with a smile on their face. Well, they don't really do, but I think in their minds, if they had a face. probably enough for them. So <laughs> Cicadas are all that way uh, around the world. You can find cicadas in Borneo. There's some particularly loud ones, I recall, for example. Uh, the ones here with enough of them are loud enough for us, I'm sure. Mm. Now, you said tasty. That's concerning, Mark. That's that's concerning. Yeah, you don't like tasty food? You like uh, you wish they didn't taste good? Well, I'd, 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 I'd like tasty food. I'm not sure I'm keen on crunchy bugs. So how do you know this? <laughs> Well, you know, I I, I work in weird, uh, you know, all over the world in in unusual spots, and I've learned that people eat different things in different places. And so, I worked in Thailand, for example, where they eat eighty different kinds of insects. And Mexico is pretty much the same number, about eighty kinds of insects, eighty, oh, yeah. hundred. I forget the exact number, but you know, when you're when you're visiting the neighbors, you do what the neighbors do, and it, it's. 
actually they're very tasty you it, particularly if you don't know what you're doing at the first time you try them hmm. you know and they realize wow these are great and uh you know my mom went to mexico and apparently she had some frozen grasshoppers in her freezer she liked them so much so even moms will eat things that you don't expect and cicadas probably aren't as good as grasshoppers you, you know if you want the solid truth from me uh, but they're Not still as good as grasshoppers yeah. Yeah, you know, just if you want a ranking. Now I want a ranking. I do. I really do. What kind of bugs? Like, what are kind of bugs? Do you like? I'm assuming this isn't just something you normally do. Is it just when you travel and you're there, or I mean, what kind of bugs do you eat? Yeah. Well, there's an explorers club here in New York, and they have a banquet, and they they have a chef who creates all kinds of things with bugs and so forth. But I don't really go for that. I want to eat it where they actually know how to cook it. It's like having a hamburger in Paraguay or China. I mean, maybe they can make you a hamburger, but, but you should probably just try the local cuisine. Mm -hmm. And uh, when I'm in China, I've had all kinds of uh, things that have actually been quite good from centipedes to scorpions to uh, any, you know, all kinds of crunchy, tasty things. In New Guinea, they eat uh, beetle larvae from the sago palm. Uh, there's a giant spider that's quite nutty and flavorful. And in fact, cicadas are pretty much, they're a nutty, they're kind of crunchy on the outside and creamy in the middle. Oh God, Mark. Oh yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. so what you have to do, your kids, I, I, I believe are too old. You've got uh, two sons, is it? A son and a daughter, both teens though. Okay, teens. I mean, you got to get them started early. When you were uh, six months old and in diapers, you were trying all kinds of things in the backyard and saying, wow, yeah. I would like to eat this later. And your parents convince you out of it. Yeah. And unfortunately, that means we get stuck on this diet of expensive things like beef and so forth, which aren't good for the environment. And, you know, here we have cicadas. They're there are pounds and pounds of them out there, and they're actually quite tasty. American Indians would have eaten them. Certainly Mexicans did. And, uh, you know, you can have quite a meal anytime you want. And that's what all the other creatures are doing now is these cicadas emerge. You know, the birds and the foxes and everybody else is feasting on them. It's, it's quite a successful year for the wildlife. Okay, so you say grasshoppers are better. Um... It's, well, it's a matter of opinion, of course, but yeah. Depends on the recipe, I, I imagine. You know, it, it takes a professional chef. You don't just grab one, put a stick in it, throw it on the barbecue. Actually, that would probably pretty be pretty good with a grasshopper. That's what I did. I I went to Venezuela once to visit the Piaroa Indians, and we went hunting for giant tarantulas. They're in fact the world's largest tarantulas. They eat birds. They're bird-eating tarantulas. Oh man! And you throw them on the fire. And you do that mostly because you want to bake off their type four toxic hairs, which otherwise will poison you. And once you bake those off, you crack open the legs of these tarantulas. And they're basically like crab meat. It's delicious. Uh, but if you do go down there, you should bring your own sauce because they don't have the sauce for the crab meat for the tarantulas. I, I would bring my own sauce, but it's really good. So that's just an example of the kind of things people around the world have been eating for centuries and they're quite tasty. So uh, just to give another example, my wife, Melissa, and I went to Cambodia and we had chicken once and it had this spicy sauce on it. And we realized it was diced ants and it was full of this spice that was quite amazing, a tepanade uh, recipe that I would like to replicate, but the ants aren't available in uh, New York. <laughs> so. 
This is mind-blowing to me, Mark. You're the best. Holy cow. Um, <laughs> tarantulas, tarantulas that taste like crab meat. All right. So oh, yeah. what would be, like in North America, what would be like a North American bug that you would say that if cooked properly, that would be all right? Uh, well, there are probably quite a few kinds of grasshoppers you could cook, and uh, cicadas are certainly one right now. Uh, you know, termites are a pest, and the best way to to get rid of them might be to eat them in many cases, because in fact, they're eat, uh, in Africa, you eat them even raw when the 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 winged ones fly out in the spring. So they're they're, they're quite nice, and but you can actually cook them, saute them as well. It all depends. Most of these recipes are, are fairly simple, and sometimes they're just used, uh, insects are just used as a flavor enhancement. Uh, you know, ants, as I mentioned before, uh, added a lot of flavor to this chicken, and that's because, you know, ants have stings, and that's, those acids are, you know, they give it flavor. It's like uh, citrus. It uh, adds punch. Hmm. And so you go to, a, again, Venezuela, and you go to a, a shop, a small cafe, and I'll have a little bottle of salsa on the table, and I'll have a bunch of ant heads floating on the top, and that tells you it's the real thing. Wow. Um, Mind-blowingly amazing. Somewhat disturbing. I admire it. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, I can invite you on a field trip anytime. Yeah. You can be the taste tester. You can be the, the one that comes out in advance and checks things out. All right. I have stories of all kinds of uh, eating, all kinds of things. I don't know how far you want to go, but you know, I was in a conference once in China, uh, which was on alternative foods for a sustainable future. And it's true that these alternative foods have more protein and uh, less harmful things like cholesterol than you know beef. But among the sessions at that conference was who eats rats? It mm. turns out a few uh, people do eat rats. I've bumped into a couple of rats in my day. And, uh, you know, it's like, you know, getting a squirrel roadkill down south. It yeah. still happens sometimes in the States. Yeah. All right. Guinea pigs in Peru, for example. Really? Oh, don't tell the little kids that one. Um, it's mind-blowing. Uh, just be be mindful when you eat your little creatures. For example, uh, pro tip, uh, no termites in a wood bowl. Doesn't go well. <laughs> Oh yeah, well yeah, they should be sautéed before they're put in the bowl. Oh. That is part of that, you know. But you know, a well-fed termite probably in, it has better flavor. We could do we could do studies. You know, I'm a scientist. We could actually do some research if you want. We can come together. You can gather the termites. We can blindfold your kids and see what they think. Yeah, that's crazy. I don't know. I'd be might get dad of the year, might not. Uh, Mark Moffat's the bug guy. Uh, thanks so much, Mark. Where can everybody go to connect with your stuff? Because you have so much information out there that people can learn more about you. <laughs> Appreciate it, Shane. I'm, I'm drbugs.com. Doctor spelled out bugs.com. There are all kinds of things about bugs and creatures and all kinds of stories in there. All right, check it out. There it is. Mark Moffat, thank you so much for the time. And um, have a good one. I'm not going to look at food ever the same again. <laughs> Later. Thanks for listening to The Shift Podcast. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the show and share with anyone you like. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and CuriousCast.ca.